We'll get started this evening. We didn't get, surprise, surprise, as far as I had hoped to get last week. I wanted to get through this entire um, packet. It's familiar. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I know it. Uh, and this entire packet was justification and sanctification. So last week I talked about justification, and I didn't get into sanctification. Uh, justification is the, the doctrine, that we call it, the teaching in, in the Word of God and, and in the church, whereby we understand that man is saved by grace through faith, and that when we accept Jesus Christ as our Savior, that um, we are declared righteous on account of Jesus Christ's work on the cross. So we talked through all of that last week. We talked about how um, Jesus satisfied God's wrath for sin, so that God's wrath, uh, the Father's wrath against mankind for sin, Jesus went to the cross, He paid that penalty, He paid the, the debt for that, and now, effectively, our, we owe our debt to Christ. And because the, the wrath of the Father against sin is satisfied, um, our debt is now to Christ, and then Christ has set the standard at accepting Christ as your Savior, believing on the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved. And then we talked a little bit about what that means, because James tells us that, that even the devils believe that Jesus is God. I mean, they know He is, because um, He has authority, and and so then what does it mean to believe? And we talked a little bit about that and, and the idea of, um, of accepting Christ as your Savior, not just being a mental ascent, but a, a heart understanding and, and truly investing in the fact that Jesus died on the cross, that he was buried, that he rose again the third day. And then finally, on top of that, um, understanding the idea that um, there is a, a, pre, a presupposition of works that comes with, with faith. In other words, when you have faith, there is an expectation. You can expect that with that faith will come works, a desire to please the Lord, a desire to do what's right. It doesn't mean we're going to be sinlessly perfect, but there, it is going to, to bring about a, a noticeable, understandable change in priority and life um, direction when we have this recognition that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, uh, that he paid the penalty. If we can call it this way, uh, these things don't happen much anymore, but, but at, at that point, we should recognize to some degree a life debt to him, that he gave us salvation without us having to earn it, but because of that, we ought to live for him. And that's what we're going to begin talking about this week on page 7 of this packet, Sanctification. Um, and sanctification, the definition of sanctification is uh, to be set apart unto a specific purpose. Um, so when we talk about sanctification, uh, one of the, the illustrations I like to give is if you think about things that are sanctified in your life, one of the things that I think of when I think of something that is sanctified, set apart for only a purpose and a specific purpose is my toothbrush. It is set aside for a purpose. It is used for no other purpose. If it ends up being used for some other purpose, because I have many children in the house, I sanctify myself a new toothbrush, right? My children take the toothbrush, and they play in the sink with it, or they go, and they, they're, you know, whatever it might be, okay, new toothbrush time, right? Because that, that toothbrush is sanctified. It is set apart for a particular purpose. And that's the idea, is the Bible tells us that we are sanctified, that we're set apart for a particular purpose, but then the Bible also um, tells us that we are in the process of being sanctified, that we are being sanctified as we live this life. We're being made more pure. We're being made more right. And so we walked through Romans 1 through 5 last week, and Romans 1 through 5 taught us about justification. We're going to walk through Romans 6 
through 8 this week, um, uh, and, and then several other passages as well, as we talk about sanctification. So, we accept Jesus Christ as our Savior. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone. And this can be a, um, a frustrating topic for people that uh, live to serve the Lord and, and, and love Jesus Christ, and then they see others around them who claim to serve the Lord and to love Jesus Christ, and yet they're not living it. They're, they're, they, they don't, they're, there's nothing in their life that would even evidence that they're a believer. Uh, they say that they're a believer, but there's nothing in their life that evidences a believer. And at some point, of course, it's very, very true that they may not be. However, we recognize that the conditions for salvation are just accepting Jesus Christ as your Savior. It's, it's not to say that it's a low bar, because it's not a low bar. The Bible says that very few find this road, because most people, and we talked about this last week, that are in religion are attempting to earn their way. They have not actually acknowledged that Jesus Christ is the only way to God. They have not acknowledged that Jesus' finished work on the cross is the way to Christ. They may say that, but what they're actually doing is trying to earn their way to God through self-righteousness. They're trying to earn their way to God through their works. And as we spoke of last week, we can't do that. And so the difference between the man who's on his way to heaven and the man who's not may not actually be in his actions, his words, his speech. It may be in the fact that one man is trying to get to heaven by the good works he's doing, and the other man is doing the good works because he's on his way to heaven. And so that man is saved. This man is trying to earn his way. And the Bible says that he, he's self-righteous. He's trying to earn his way rather than accepting the way that's already been given. So uh, th- this, this idea comes up and it can create a-, a tension where you say, well, so then are we talking about this, just this, such a low bar that a person can be doing whatever they want to do? Okay, in other words, do they have a get out of jail free card, right? Can I just say I accept Jesus as my savior, now I can go do whatever I want because I'm under grace and there's not going to be any consequences. And that's what Paul talks about in Romans 6, 7, and 8. Romans 6, 7, and 8 are intended to show us that a mindset will change when we're in Christ, and then to teach us about how to live within that mindset, and then to live within the power of Christ. Uh, Before we get into that, I know I breezed through a lot of stuff very quickly. For, For those of you that weren't here last week, um, do we need to settle anything as far as in your mind about what, what I just said? Anything deeply confusing there? Okay. All right. Um, so chapter 6, verse 1, Paul says this. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? So Paul is ans- asking and then answering this question. Should we say that because gra- we are under grace, we're not under the law, We don't rest under a God who is waiting to cast lightning bolts down from heaven when we fail or when we fall short. Because we have this God of mercy and of grace, and he has extended grace through his son Jesus Christ, and there's nothing I can do to earn my way to heaven, and I don't have to earn my way to heaven, does that mean that we should and can simply continue in sin that grace may abound? Well, he says, no, God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? And then he exhorts us unto a mindset. He says, Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, 
that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. This is not speaking of water baptism here, but it's actually what water baptism represents. So as we walk through baptism in the scriptures, water baptism is a representation of a spiritual reality. And the spiritual reality is what's being described here. That when a person accepts Jesus Christ as their Savior, uh, judicially, remember last week we talked about the idea that God, when Jesus was hanging on the cross, God went from being Jesus' father to being his judge, and he judicially punished Jesus Christ with our sin. This is the only way God could be both just and justify the ungodly. And we talked about justice and how the, the very foundation, the necessity of justice is that a person pays for what they've done wrong. And if God is just, how can he let me off? Well, because he didn't let me off. Jesus paid for it. Justice was done. Justice was just done on Jesus. And so when I accept Jesus Christ as my Savior, I am positionally buried with Christ. I I, I am placed under his blood. I am buried with Christ. And then he says here, by baptism, that would be spirit baptism unto death. And then I'm raised to walk in newness of life. What happens at that transaction is that my sin nature, that part of me, and I believe we talked last week about the idea of our sin nature as a, as a, as a sickness, right? That we have the symptoms. And the symptoms, we said, yeah, we talked about it in Romans 1. The symptoms of the sickness are, are the sins we commit. But the actual content, the, the, the sickness itself, the virus, the infection, the thing that's causing the symptoms is our sin nature. When we accept Christ as our Savior, the Bible says our, our sin nature dies with Christ. And we're raised to be something brand new, something entirely different. We're raised to walk in a new life, in a newness of life. And that newness of life is what, what Paul is going to describe here. And it is this newness of life what we talked about last week in justification, the idea uh, through justification that faith expects works. It presupposes works. It is the newness of life that compels those works. That literally, as uh, 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become New. So there is this reformation that takes place in the heart of a man when he accepts Christ as a Savior. Now, that doesn't mean it always happens like a lightning bolt. I've met people before that when they accept Christ as their Savior, it's like everything just changes. Um, I knew a, a guy, he was a, a, um, a Marine, and he said when he accepted Christ as his Savior, overnight he lost about 95% of his vocabulary. And it's just like, boom, he knew it. He was ready to serve. He was ready to do what was right, and, and everything changed. There's others where they accept Christ as their Savior, and then there's a process. Over time, years, discipleship of learning what's right, of God telling you you need to stop that, that's wrong, of, of growing in the Lord and growing in works so that a man, particularly early on in his faith, or if he remains young in the faith because he's not, not grown and discipled in a good church, uh, he might be living the same life, that he did before, before he was saved, but there will be a difference still in that now he has the Spirit of God in him saying, convicting him. There's, there's something wrong here. There's something, there's something amiss here. Uh, he doesn't have the same pleasures he had before in the things which he did because he is something different fundamentally. So that's the idea, the picture, and that's what baptism is about. That's why um, in, in Orthodox... Uh, um, evangelical circles and whatnot, um, we believe in baptism after salvation. 
rather than infant baptism in the Lutheran and the Catholic traditions. Because baptism after salvation, well, if baptism is a, a declaration of what has happened in me, that I've been buried with Christ and risen from the dead, then it needs to happen after I've been buried with Christ and risen from the dead unto uh, newness of life. Um, the, the reason for infant baptism is actually a, um, a, effectively a parallel to the Old Testament circumcision on the eighth day. And on the eighth day, they circumcised the, the child, and that ushered him into the covenant people of Israel, and then they gave him his covenant, his name. Uh, and they named him on that eighth day at the same time they circumcised him. And the Bible says that we don't need to be circumcised as believers in order to be right with God. And so the church couldn't assume that. So what these, some of these liturgical denominations did is they said, well, the church is a covenant body, and we want people to enter into that covenant body, so they started circumcising, not circumcising, they started baptizing infants to baptize them into the covenant family of the church and um, giving them, that was called the christening, right? Because they gave them their name, they gave them their Christian name on the day of their christening, which was on the day of their infant baptism. A a direct parallel to to circumcision in the Old Testament. So... um, so if somebody hasn't been baptized since they were an infant, like I was raised Lutheran, yeah. does that mean I need to go get baptized because I'm now like, renewed? Um, I, I would say yes. Um, I believe the Bible teaches that baptism is something that takes place after you accept Christ as your Savior and that it's a public profession of your faith in Christ. It's a step of obedience as we see it in, in the book of Acts. As a matter of fact, uh, Acts, uh, Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch is one of the best examples of this. Um, the Ethiopian, uh, God whisks Philip out of Samaria and takes him down to where this Ethiopian eunuch is traveling back to Ethiopia. And he's reading a scroll of Isaiah 53, which speaks of Jesus being suffering and dying. Um, and Philip runs up to the chariot and he says, do you understand what you're, what you're reading? And, and the man says, how can I accept someone teach me? So Philip expounds to him Isaiah 53 and the fact that Jesus died on the cross for his sins. And at the end of this, he, he stopped the, the chariot and he, he pointed to a body of water and he said, what hinders me that I should be baptized? And Philip said, if thou believe with all thy heart, thou mayest. And he says, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And then they go down and they get baptized. So we see there this idea that, um, that baptism is intended to be a public profession of a faith that you already possess and a, a public example of that. So I, I would recommend that, that you do that. Uh, again, it's not, going to, it's not going to be a determining factor in whether you get to heaven. I mean, the thief on the cross was with the Lord in paradise and he didn't have time to get baptized, right? Um, baptism is not a condition for salvation. If it is, then all of a sudden salvation is by works, right? I have to do something to be saved. But it is very much uh, a step of obedience that the Lord asks us to do to publicly profess our faith in, in Jesus Christ in that manner. That answer. Yeah. Good. Other questions on that? Um, so, we're buried with him by baptism into death, and we are raised to walk in newness of life. Verse 5, for if, if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, if we've died with Christ and planted in his death, we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that's the sinful man, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that we henceforth should not serve sin, for he that is dead is freed from sin. Now if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we also live with him, shall also live with him. 
knowing that Christ being raised from the dead dieth no more, death hath no more dominion over him, for in that he died, he died unto sin once, but in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. So the idea here is that we are recognizing that we have been freed from sin when you accept Jesus Christ as your Savior. You, you, the, the Bible teaches and we acknowledge that sin's chains have been lifted off of us. It doesn't mean you can't sin anymore. It doesn't mean you won't sin anymore. We won't be free from this. We'll talk about that in Romans 7 until we die. That's when we're finally free from the temptation to sin. But until that point, the temptation is there, but we don't have to serve sin anymore. The unbeliever has to serve sin. That's all they've got. And the way I describe it is like a lamp. Imagine that you're a lamp and you're plugged into an outlet and the outlet that you're plugged into is your sin nature. Now, as a, a person plugged into your sin nature, um, there's all sorts of different decisions that you can make for any number of reasons. A person plugged and driven by their sin nature can still do all the moral things that anyone does, right? Um, uh, uh, for for self-righteous reasons, for proud reasons, for wanting to please your parents, wanting to please your idea of who God is, wanting to please your church, wanting to please your pastor. All of these things can motivate somebody, even with a, who's dominated by their sin nature, to moralize. Mor uh, moralizing is actually not that hard of a thing to do. It just takes discipline to live a certain way, to think a certain way, to act a certain way. But the difference between the moralizer and the Christian is that moralizers are living an outward religion, but inward, inside they still have all of the same lusts and desires and evils. They're just not letting them get out. The Christian is not a man changed from the outside in. The Christian is a man changed from the inside out. The Christian man's heart changes. His heart aligns with God. He desires then to do what's right, and then he'll do what's right because he loves God. And so that's the distinction between the moralizer, the religiosity, the per person who's just religious, and the person who has faith in Jesus Christ. The man who has accepted Jesus Christ as their savior will have an inside-out desire to do right. And this is what Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount. He says, So it has been said unto you that thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you that if you lust after a woman in your heart, you've committed adultery already. That you, you've heard it said, Thou shalt not kill, or murder is, is the word there. But I say unto you that if you hate your brother you've already murdered him in your heart. What's going on there? I can train myself not to allow my inward emotions to affect my actions. As a matter of fact, if you ask an Orthodox Jew, they'll still say this today. It doesn't matter what you're thinking. What makes you a good or bad person is what you do or what you don't do. Well, I can restrain, I can cause my flesh to not, you know, to, to, to not murder someone while still hating them with murder in my heart. I can cause my flesh to not actually commit adultery while still lusting after women in my heart. What Jesus came to do is to make it to where I don't have to and want to lust after women in my heart. Where I don't have to and want to hate my brother in my heart or even hate my enemy in my heart. Jesus came to change us from the inside out. And that's what he wants of us. He wants us to change from the inside out. He wants to give us this new desire that renews in us th this, this passion to, to actually serve him, not just to look good on the outside or not simply to restrain my passions, but actually to 
control my passions, to actually dominate my passions so that I'm not driven, I'm not plugged into that sin nature anymore. So when I accept Jesus Christ as my Savior, I'm given a new outlet that's called the Spirit. I unplug from the flesh, I plug into the Spirit, and now when I'm plugged into the Spirit, righteousness flows out of me. I don't have to discipline myself into righteousness. Righteousness is a desire of my heart. And as a man thinketh in his heart, Jesus said, so is he. And so righteousness begins to flow. We're going to talk about this more in our next, um, in our next uh, set of lessons. The first thing will be assurance of salvation. And then the next one is um, the flesh versus the spirit and how to, how to understand the difference between the flesh and the spirit and how to recognize the, the flesh or our sin nature versus the spirit and then to walk in the spirit. So what Paul is calling us to here is a mindset. A mindset that understands and recognizes that we are dead, that our sin nature is dead, that it does not have power over us anymore. That's something the unbeliever cannot say. That's something that is not a reality in the unbeliever. He does not have power over his sin nature. It is and has to be what drives him. The believer has power to actually resist and reject and mortify, kill the deeds of the flesh through, through submitting himself to the Spirit of God. So verse 11 says, Likewise reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So if you are dead to sin, then you need to reckon it. You need to believe it. You need to assume that. You need to live what you are. If I am a child of the king, I can still go out to the streets and I can live like a pauper, or I can assume the position I have and live like a prince. Paul's saying you have been given this great privilege of being freed from your sin. Now live it. And that's sanctification. The process of determining to live in the power that has been purchased for me in Christ. Verse 12. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies that ye should obey it in the lust thereof. Sin will not reign in your heart. You'll have a desire to do what's right if you're in Christ. But sin can still reign in your body if you allow it. You can, as a believer, you can still unplug from the Spirit and plug back into your, your, your sin. It's still there. It exists still. It was not eradicated. It's just been, the, the power has been removed. So he says, don't let sin reign. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. Act like you have been buried with Christ and risen from the dead. If you are a believer, act like a believer. That's what he's saying here. Verse 14, For sin shall not have dominion over you, for ye are not under the law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? God forbid. Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. You can still serve sin. As a believer, you can still serve sin. But when you think about that, and we talked last week about God pouring out, the Father pouring out his wrath for, for our sin on Jesus. Jesus bore that wrath. It's borderline blasphemy. For me to think about Jesus bearing the wrath of my sin on the cross and then to say, I'm just going to use the grace that he purchased for me to live however I want, to live in abject sinfulness. 
And that's the idea. Don't allow that to be the tenor of your life. This is sanctification. This is the process of growing in your understanding of who God is, what he wants of you. Does he have you? You have him. Now, does he have you? And that's the question. But God be thanked, verse 17, that ye were servants of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine or teaching which was delivered you. Being made free from sin, ye became servants of righteousness. I speak after the manner of men because of the infirmity of your flesh. For as ye have yielded your members' servants to uncleanness and to iniquity unto iniquity, that would be a word for sin, even so now yield your members' servants to righteousness and to holiness. He says, look, if you've died with Christ, if you've been risen with Him, to the same degree that you once served sin, to the same degree that you once impassionately served your own desires and your own lusts and your own loves, now serve Christ. Put all of that passion behind Christ. Follow Him. For when ye were the servants of sin, verse 20, you were free from righteousness, what fruit had ye in those things whereof ye are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. What fruit was there? Thinking from a spiritual perspective, what benefit was there in all that stuff that, that we once did? There was no fruit. There was no righteousness. The end of that is death, separation from God, guilt, shame. This is the fruit of unrighteousness. So he says, from a basically a logical perspective, thinking about this, what, what's the point? What was the fruit of it? Uh, what's the value of pursuing sin still? Verse 22, But now being made free from sin and become servants to God, ye have your fruit unto holiness and the end of everlasting life, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now we can bear the fruit of holiness. We can please our Lord. We can lay up treasure in heaven. So in Romans chapter 6, we have this call unto a mindset to reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive unto Christ. That recognizing that we've been dead from sin, we don't allow sin to reign over us. We don't have to. You know, when I go to the jail, and I, I, I used an illustration of the jail last week as well, but when I go to the jail, one of the most interesting things is that these people um, are helpless. They, I, I've been working with this one young lady. Uh, she just left the other day. Her name is Rebecca. And uh, she was 26 years old, started doing uh, drugs when she was 12 to cope with life, to cope with family, abuse, sexual abuse, all that. Um, had been in and out of treatment 17 times. And she sat down in front of me and said, I've been in and out of treatment 17 times. And she uh, accepted Christ as her Savior this last October. And, um, of course, been in and out of jail, two kids. Um, has not seen them in, in a long time. And she felt absolutely helpless. This isn't working. And I can't tell you how many people I sit across from the table who have gone to all of these treatments and they just say it's not working. And what society is telling them now is, of course it's not working. You have a disease and it's incurable and there's nothing you can do about it. This is your life now. You have this disease. It's genetics. It's society. It's all of their fault. And so now we just need to maintain the disease. So they put them on certain medications and, and then they're just in and out. 
and it's a cycle. And then they sit across from me and I take them to Romans chapter 6 and I show them that they can break free from sin. That they can actually be freed from sin. Now the interesting thing about that is I've also met a lot of Christians who struggle with sin and they don't feel like they, are free, they can be free from it either. They don't feel like they, they have any means. Now we're not talking at that point about drugs and alcohol, but we're talking about the other things that, that um, the, the, the societally acceptable sins that, that we struggle with and, and they feel bound by them. And what Paul is calling us to here in Romans chapter 6 is a mindset that says, wait a minute, I am not bound by sin if I'm in Christ. If I am in Christ, I, sin, it does not have to control me. The only control it has over me is the control that I am giving it over me. In my heart, I am allowing these things room to, room to grow, room to operate. And it has to be me because it's not in there. It has no power of its own except the power that I give it. That's what Romans 6 says if we're in Christ. However, it is there. And Romans 7 talks about that. I don't give you Romans 7 um, in, in your packet. But in Romans chapter 7, Paul uh, talks about the fact that, um, that there is still um, a sin nature. He says in verse 14, For we know that the law is spiritual. He's talking about the law and how the law condemns men to sin. And he says, well, then is the law bad now that Christ? Well, no, the law is not bad. The law is spiritual, but I'm carnal, sold under sin. The law existed as an unbeliever to show me just how sinful I was because I couldn't measure up to it. He says, for that which I do, I allow not. For what I would, that do I not. But that which I hate, that do I. If then I do that which I would not, I consent unto the law that it is good. Now then it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. So he's, he's going through this this frustrating cycle where he says the good things that I want to do I don't do and the evil things that I don't want to do those are the things I do and um, there's this frustration in his heart that while his mind his heart the thing that has been regenerated says serve God you love God the flesh the body says yeah but I love sin and the body, the flesh is going to love sin. So he continues to talk. And he says, For the good that I would, I do not. But the evil that I would not, that I do. Now if I do that I would not, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. And he says in verse 24, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I thank God, as he concludes, uh, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. So he says, as I reckon myself to be dead indeed to sin, but alive unto Christ, okay, so in my mind I want to do right. And I desire that which is right. But now I've got this problem. It's that my mind is in conflict with my body. <laughs> my mind wants to do right, but there's still fleshly desires, whether we're talking about materialism and the desire for stuff or whether we're talking about you know, lust or covetousness or lying or anger. All of those things are still there and, and sometimes they feel good. Uh, sometimes I want to be angry and I want to be angry at that person. I don't want to forgive them because there's something about feeding that anger that, that I feel justified and, and I like that. Is there then a way that in my mind wanting to do what's right, that can translate into my body doing what's right. Can, 
If, if the Christian religion is an inside-out thing, okay, so when Jesus uh, saved me, now my heart is, is in a better place, right? So um, I'm, I'm doing right from the inside-out. I desire to do right on the inside. How do I get that outside now? How do I deal with the anger? How do I deal with the bitterness? How do I deal with those things? And that's what Romans 8 talks about. He says, there's therefore, and this is in your packet, he says, there's therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. The first thing that Paul says is, we need to understand that, that we, are un, we are not under condemnation. Don't feel guilt for sin. Guilt is a powerful thing. But there's a big difference between guilt and conviction. Guilt, shame, and condemnation. Many people live under guilt, shame, and condemnation as believers. And they allow themselves to sit there as if God is, is, is actually unhappy with them. And that they're constantly hide, having to hide from God. I, I lived this way for years that when I would do something wrong, the first thing I would do is beg God to forgive me, which we ought to ask God to forgive us. And I would believe that, that he did, but I didn't, understand for, I didn't really understand forgiveness. So when I thought about God forgiving me, I thought, okay, now God has said he's forgiven me. Now how long do I have to do good before he'll be able to use me again? Before I'll be in his good graces again? And that is an absolutely wrong concept of forgiveness. 1 John 1.9, we'll talk about it uh, a little bit more next week, says if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I, don't, I can't earn God's forgiveness any more than I can earn salvation. And the idea that God is standing over me in, in heaven angry at me and that I am having to earn my way back into his good graces um, is a misunderstanding of what forgiveness is all about, about what Jesus did on the cross. Jesus took that sin. Now, I still need to confess my sin when I do wrong. And the way I picture this when I do wrong, when I sin, the Bible says that when I accept Jesus Christ as my Savior, I'm bound to Him. We sometimes call it a covenant relationship in our circles. I'm bound to Him like, like my wife and I are bound in marriage. Now, we're bound in marriage, and though my wife and I are bound in marriage, we don't always get along perfectly. And so there are times where I'll offend my wife, or my wife will offend me, and in doing so, there will be a natural emotional separation between us will be emotionally separated because there's something between me and her. And that emotional separation is noticeable. We can feel it. We can tell. It's you know, quiet. We don't have the same relationship we normally do. We didn't become unmarried, though. We're still married. There was just an emotional separation. Now, when I realize I did wrong or my wife realizes she did wrong, uh, and we come up to one another and we say, Hey, honey, I should not have done that. Please forgive me. That was wrong then forgiveness is offered and we don't have to get remarried. We don't have to go back to the altar. We give forgiveness. Whatever's between us is removed and then we're able to come back together into fellowship. This is the nature of the Christian life. When I fail, when I sin, I, I am brought out of fellowship with God and sin is between me. Now, unfortunately, in a lot of our marriages, with a lot of us, because we are childish and we don't understand uh, what it means to forgive very well, we ask people to earn their forgiveness back. And so forgiveness might be a process of days, weeks, months, years of bitterness and frustration and bringing it up again. And here's uh, another interesting thing. 
You know, the Bible says that God has removed, removed our, our sin from us as far as the east is from the west. I will remember your sin no more. It doesn't mean he doesn't know we sinned. It just means that he's passed it out of his mind. The Bible says, Be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. I'm kind of undercutting lesson uh, five there where I'm talking about forgiveness and anger focused. But um, one of the other interesting things about forgiveness when, when I was learning uh, about this myself I didn't have a very good idea of forgiveness when I got married because in my mind, forgiveness, as I said, was you forgive someone and then you bring it up again and then you, 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 you hold it over their heads and all of that. That's not real forgiveness. It's not forgiven if you're holding it over their heads. It's not forgiving if you bring it up again. And so I remember my wife and I got into a, a little bit of a, of a deal early on in our marriage and um, she had been in the offense that time around. And so uh, it had been some weeks later after she had asked for my forgiveness and and I brought it up. And she looked at me and, and she said, I thought you had forgiven me. And I said, what do you mean? She said, you brought it up again. I thought it was forgiven. And it hit me like a ton of bricks. I did not forgive her. If I had forgiven her, it would be done. Now, that doesn't mean I forgot. It doesn't mean, you know, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me, right? I don't have to, I don't have to let you hurt me again. Now, in the marriage context, of course, we're... You know, but, but the idea of just because I'm forgiving someone doesn't mean I'm going to let you hurt me again. But what it does mean is I'm no longer factoring what you did into how I'm going to treat you. That's true forgiveness. And so as we consider this idea, there's no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus. We don't live under condemnation. Condemnation, shame, and guilt serve to tear you down. Serve to make you feel as though you cannot be used of God, that you cannot be useful to God because you are sinner. That's shame, that's condemnation, that's guilt. Jesus bore all that on the cross. Conviction, which is what God gives us when we sin, what God gives to us when we do wrong, serves to build us up. Conviction calls us to flee to Christ. Conviction calls us to run to him for forgiveness, and when we run to him for forgiveness and we repent and we get right, then it's done and the conviction goes away. It is a call to have a proper relationship with God. Shame, condemnation, and guilt tear you down, and no matter what you do, you feel as though you can't measure up and you can't be used, and you stay down. Big difference between them. Paul says there is no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit, verse 2, of life in Christ hath made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, that would be the ordinances, this would have been what people thought would save them, right? Self-righteousness, trying to be perfect. For what the law could not do, and that it was weak through the flesh. The law was weak, not because God's law had a flaw. We look at the law and we say, well, the law didn't work, therefore the law is flawed. No, the law didn't work because I am flawed. If I could keep God's law perfectly, I'd go to heaven. The law was a perfect a perfect example of what God expected. The problem is, I can't. And that is what the law is supposed to do. It's supposed to tell me, I can't. And then I have to find another solution because the law ain't going to get me there. And then Christ fulfilled the law, became the solution. So instead of trying to be, fulfill the law, I flee to Christ. Right? What the law could not do because it was weak through the flesh. That's my sin. God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin condemns sin in the flesh. That the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh but after the spirit. If we walk after the spirit, the righteousness of the law can be fulfilled in us.
For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the spirit mind uh, the things of the spirit. For to be carnally, that would be fleshly minded, is death, separation from God, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither can it be, so then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. Anything I do in the flesh does not please God. Even if I'm a believer, if I'm doing it in the flesh, if I'm doing it, it driven by the sinful part of me, lust, covetousness, pride, anger, it's sin. It's sin. Now, the unbeliever only has the flesh, right? Only one outlet. All they do, no matter how moral or immoral, cannot please God because it's in the flesh. It's driven by their sin nature. You and I have a different privilege. If we've accepted Jesus Christ as our Savior, we have the capacity to please God by plugging into the outlet of the Spirit and letting the Spirit of God flow through us and thus live out righteousness in us. And that's what Paul continues to say. But ye, verse 9, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he's none of his. If you don't have the Spirit of Christ, you're not a believer. Every believer has the Spirit of Christ. And this is an important thing, because um, uh, in charismatic circles, they have what's called the second blessing. The idea that you accept Jesus, and then uh, you have a second blessing where the Spirit of God actually falls on you, and that's oftentimes where people speak in tongues and whatnot. Um, Romans 8 says, if you don't have the Spirit of Christ, you are not in Christ. If you don't have His Spirit. So this is one of the verses that helps us recognize that the Spirit of God indwells every believer and must indwell every believer. When you accept Christ as your Savior, the Spirit of God comes to live inside of you. Verse 11. Um, verse 10. And if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin. Okay, so we still have a sinful body. If Christ is in us, that body is still sinful. But the Spirit is life because of righteousness. My spirit is alive. I've accepted Jesus Christ as my Savior. My spirit is alive, but my body is dead. But then notice what verse 11 says. But if the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken, make alive, is what that word means, your mortal bodies by his spirit that dwelleth in you. If you have the spirit of God in you, so that you have the power of the spirit of God indwelling you, then as this power of the Spirit of God was able to raise Jesus from the dead, so too can the power of the Spirit of God give you the ability in your body to reject sin and to do righteousness. As you walk in the Spirit, you can do right. You don't have to serve sin. For as many as are led... Um, no, verse 12. 12. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live after the flesh. We owe nothing to sin. For if you shall live after the flesh, you shall die. That being, there will be a separation between you and God. Not unto damnation, but in fellowship. But if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. 
For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. So we are already heirs of God. We're joint heirs with Christ. We have these blessings. The Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. How do you know that you're a believer? Well, we'll talk more about assurance next week, but one of the things is that the Spirit of God testifies to you that you're a child of God. But, and what that means is that we do not have to live under the bondage of sin. And this is sanctification. The rest of our time, over the next several weeks, um, we're going to talk about assurance uh, and spirit and flesh, which are a little bit more um, broad as well. But then after that, we're going to be talking about individual things. Prayer, Bible reading, church, Christians and material possessions, forgiveness, anger, what a Christian family looks like, how does a Christian relate to society. Those are our other topics. And the whole point of all of these other topics is if Christ is in us and his power is in us and we are free, then what does living for Christ look like? What does living God's way look like? And we're going to be talking a lot about that. But tonight's mindset, this idea of sanctification, what we're trying to get through here is simply the mindset that you are not under bondage to your sin. That the Christian is not under bondage to sin. You don't have to live in that place. And that's very, very important for us to understand. We are already viewed in God's eyes as perfect. We are clothed in Jesus' righteousness. It doesn't mean we are sinlessly perfect. One day we will be when we get to heaven. But we have the power over sin in our lives through Christ and the Spirit that dwells in us. Questions about that? Or thoughts? And so we, we call that um, the, 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 the initial element that we are viewed as perfect through Christ's righteousness, that we are clothed in His righteousness. That's positional sanctification. That God already sees us as perfect. We're already set aside to God. Um, and then as we get to what does that mean for us, how do we live it, that's called what we call practical sanctification. The progressive process of growing closer to God as we live this life. And... Um, we see the next verse that you have there on your list on page 9 is Jude. Uh, Jude only has one chapter, but I put the chapter in there. Um, Jude 1, verses 24 and 25. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to the only wise God, our Savior, be glory and majesty and dominion. He is able to keep us from falling. He will present us faultless. We are perfect in Christ's righteousness already and now it's time to grow. Now it's time to learn. Practical sanctification on the bottom of that sheet is a progressive process that will continue throughout your life whereby we live in the power of God to claim victory over sin. We live in the power of God to reflect in our bodies the purity of our spirits before God. We live in a juxtaposition to the philosophy of the world which holds men in despair and the guilt of their own sin. We live in freedom. We live in joy. We live in the power of God. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul begins talking about this. Ephesians 2 gives way uh, to a great discussion. Uh, Ephesians 2 talks about positionally what we are in Christ which gives way practically in Ephesians chapter four, chapter 4 to what this means for us. Uh, verse uh, the, the top of page 10. 
verse 1 says, And you hath he quickened, made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation. That word conversation in the King James uh, means the conduct or lifestyle of our lives. It doesn't just mean what we say, but it means the, uh, all of our conduct. Um, we had our conversation in times past in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath even as others. So it's describing what you were and what I was before Christ. Now I was saved at a young age, um, and because of that, there, there's a, a somewhat of a disadvantage, we might say, to those that are saved at a very young age, because you don't really see the difference. Um, I was saved at five, and so the idea of, okay, I was maybe, what, you know, taking gumdrops, I don't really remember, I, didn't, I don't have major sins that I can, I can look back on and then say, wow, you know, when I got saved, things really changed. Um, things just were, I, as far as I can remember, um, I've been a follower of Jesus Christ. My sin struggles have come after Christ, um, and which brings you know that Romans six, seven, and eight thing into into view and necessity very heavily. But Paul describes the the life that we lived before Christ here in Ephesians two. You walked according to the course of this world. You pursued the world's desires, the world's pleasures. You thought the way the world thinks. You you did it the way the world does it. Um, it's this, this dog-eat-dog sort of idea. It's this pragmatic ends justifies the means sort of idea. It's this uh, do what thou wilt sort of idea. This is the way the world operates. And, and Paul says that was once you. You lived in the lust of your flesh, fulfilling the desires of your flesh and your mind. This is who you were. But then he says in verse 4, But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us, made us alive together with Christ, by grace ye are saved, and hath raised us up together, and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. This is again that positional sanctification, that we have been made something different in Christ, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. So once again, we see a transition from the positional, that we are already in Christ, we're made alive, we stand before him in, in righteousness too. Now we need to do this on this earth. Now that we are, now, now that we've been saved, we've been brought out of this mindset of sin, the priorities of sin, we are a follower of Christ. Why did he create you again? Why were you born again? Why were you made a new creation? Why were you buried with him and, and raised to walk in newness of life? Why did he do it? Not just so that we could go to heaven. If it was just so that we would go to heaven, then when we accept Jesus Christ as our Savior, we'd probably just be taken home, right? Mission accomplished. You accept Christ, you get to go home. But that's not it. We're still here. Why are we still here? Because we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. He has ordained that you and I walk in good works. He has ordained that you and I live righteous lives. So, 
as we walk through this process, what does it mean? If I am freed from the power of sin, and I can be freed not just from the power of sin in my mind and in my heart and my desires, but in my actions, what does it look like? What does righteousness look like? Um, Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, Paul says this. He says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present in your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. One of the things, the presuppositions of this, of this course and the last course that we took together when we were walking through the Bible is that we presuppose that the Bible is true, right? We presuppose that the Bible is true. And one of the big foundational ideas that I've tried to get across is, look, you can believe it or not believe it. My job is not to make you believe or not believe. My job is to tell you what is. And if it's in the book, then you decide whether or not the book is something that you're going to follow, but it's in the book. And that mindset of, it's in the book, that mindset of God says it, so I should do it. That, that idea that compels the Christian to his way of thinking. As we talked a little bit about Romans 1 last week, and we talked throughout our last class, why is it that we have the things that we have, we believe the things that we believe, the, the tensions in society right now, among certain um, um, cultural aspects, right? The tensions in society as it relates to um, uh, ideology and as it relates to philosophies and as it relates to uh, uh, what's right and what's wrong. Things that are, are morally contested now, whether we want to talk about abortion or, or homosexuality or transgenderism, whether we want to talk about um, uh, death penalty, um, whether we want to talk about uh, the, the basic liberties, how the family functions, uh, whether it should be our society or our families that have the authority, right? Is it government that has the authority or is it the, the family that has the authority? All of these things that are, are contentions in society. In our last class, we, we tried to make it quite clear that we're not Christians and, and, and those that that believe what, what, say, Orthodox Christians do, we're not that way just because we hate people or we don't want people to, to do what they want to do or any of those things. We don't hate the, the, the homosexual. We don't hate the transgender. We don't hate the person who gets an abortion. We don't hate the, the, the people who are on the, the other end of these things. But simply put, we see a design in Scripture, and we believe that it's right. And because we believe that a design is right, we are going to stand up and say, so if something is right, then something else is wrong, right? And that comes down to this idea in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, that if Christ has died for me, then it should not be too much for me to place myself on the altar and say, well, God, then I'm yours. If you have given your life to save me from my sin and to let me get to heaven, and you have given your life to reconcile me unto the Father, then it's not too much to ask that then I spend my life serving you. Then I frame my mind and, and my thinking on your mind and your thinking. I don't know if you've ever had somebody who has kind of attached themselves to you, where they look up to you, 
and as they, they, for whatever reason, maybe it's because you helped them out, or maybe it's because you were the, the, you know, their favorite teacher, or whatever it might be, or maybe it's a, a parent and a child relationship, where that young person uh, begins to, to think that everything that the mentor says is right. Right? It's like, it's like you can do no wrong, uh, that, that you're, you're walking um, above everything else. And if, if he thinks it, then I'm going to think it. If he does it, then I'm going to do it. Well, why? Because you respect that person so much, or that person respects you so much, that, they, that they're literally starting to think like you. And, and they want to emulate you. They want to be your disciple, more or less. When Jesus calls us his disciples, and when he calls us to be his disciples, when he says, follow me, I, as the Father, am the leader in my home. And I care because the Bible says that I, as the father, am going to stand before God accountable. My wife does care that she respects and submits to my authority because she, before God, believes with all of her heart that when she stands before God, he's going to hold her accountable for that. My children do understand their necessity of honoring their parents and obeying their parents because they know uh, the ones that are saved, the two oldest, they know before God that they're going to stand before God and be held accountable for that. And it completely changes the way I live my life when I say Jesus died for me. Is it too much that I live for him? And all of a sudden I read this book and this book is no longer just an interesting philosophy and some neat suggestions for how to ma maximize my, my, my life potential. This is right or wrong. This is do or don't. This is please the one who's, who, who died for me or, or displeased the one who died for me. This is shame Christ's sacrifice or magnify his sacrifice. And that's what practical sanctification is about. It's about growing in the Lord. It's about learning more of him. It's about becoming more like Christ as I learn to love him more, as I understand better what he did for me. So Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, you have it there at the bottom of page 10, I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called, with all lowliness and meekness, with longsuffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And he goes on to say in verses 17 through 23, I, uh, This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that ye henceforth not walk, uh, walk not as other Gentiles walk. The, the word Gentiles there at this point is effectively talking about unbelievers. In the vanity of their minds, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling have given themselves over to lasciviousness, which would be sexual impurity, to work all uncleanness with greediness. But ye have not so learned Christ. If so be that ye have heard him and have been taught by him, as the truth is in Jesus, that ye put off concerning the former conversation the old man, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. And then it goes on to say, put on the new man, which is created uh, in Christ unto righteousness and holiness. 
So then sanctification in this sense is that I'm putting something off and I'm putting something else on. I love God. I've accepted Christ as my Savior. I see that there are things which God loves and God hates. There are things which God wants and God does not want. So I'm going to take those things which God does not want and because I love Him and I desire to serve Him, I'm going to put them off. Not because I feel like I have to earn my way into favor with Him. Not because I feel like I have to earn my way into salvation. But because I want to please the one who died for me. I'm going to put those things off. And I'm going to put on the things that He's asked me to put on. I'm going to assume a new mindset. This is the renewing of the mind idea from Romans chapter 6. So, uh, I, then I jump you to Colossians. Um, we, we could have read the rest of Ephesians 4 as well, which we will do at, at some point in the future. But in Colossians 3, 1-11, through 11, Paul then writes, If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. For ye are dead. And your life is hid with Christ in God. That's that same idea that we've been buried with Him, raised to walk in newness of life. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with Him in glory. Paul just skirts over that phrase, but it's worth parking on. When Christ, who is our life, is Christ your life? He gave His life for me. Is it too much for me then to yield my life to Him. Is Christ your life? When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with Him in glory. Mortify, kill therefore your members which are upon the earth. Fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, that would be affection for things that are not appropriate. Um, those are all sexual sins. Evil concupiscence. Uh, concupiscence is an unbridled lust. Covetousness, which is idolatry. For which things sake the wrath of God cometh upon the children of, of disobedience. Don't live in the same things for which God is angry at the world. You can, under grace, but you shouldn't. In which, also, in which ye also walked sometime when ye lived in them, but now ye also put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth. Lie not one to another, seeing that ye have put off the old man with his deeds, and have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond, nor free, but Christ is all in all. Put off the old man. Reckon yourself dead to sin, and begin to live under Christ. And this is the idea of practical sanctification. Positionally, you're already perfect in God's eyes. Practically speaking, though, we have work to do. And that work comes only as you decide that God's thoughts, that God's priorities, that God's way is better than yours. And it begins in the mind recognizing you can be free from sin. And then it works itself out in your life as you determine to live in that way. Any thoughts or questions on, on that? And that's the end of this packet. Um, okay. Let me give you a, the next one here. And we're just going to jump right into it. We've still got 40 minutes or so. And that'll help me catch up a little bit. Uh, send two of these your way. And... There. Um, 
assurance. So the next topic on our list is assurance of salvation. And in some ways I'm feeling like in the future I'll probably do justification, then assurance, then sanctification, then uh, the flesh and the spirit. But I've got two topics here that I wanted to cover. The first is assurance. I think we might be able to do it in the time that we have left. Uh, the question, how do I know that I'm a Christian? Can I know that I'm a Christian? Unfortunately, um, in, in various circles, uh, this, this question is answered in various ways. So, um, we mentioned earlier in charismatic circles, in many charismatic circles, um, the evidences of your salvation is that you do things such as speak in tongues, um, the slaying of the Spirit, those sorts of things. However, the Bible doesn't give that as a qualification of salvation or as a evidence that you are saved. Um, in, in the Catholic Church, of course, you have to be a member of their church. You have to uh, partake regularly in the Eucharist. You have to uh, um, maintain the sacraments, right? And that as you maintain the sacraments, that gives you your assurance of salvation. Unfortunately, in the scriptures, uh, we don't see that ever as a qualification. However, um, we do have qualifications given in the scriptures for uh, what you can look for to know whether or not you are actually a believer. And it's a pretty important topic um, that, that many Christians just don't really um, understand well. In our circles, or at least in my circle, um, they, they, they have, uh, growing up, my church is heavily stressed knowing when you got saved, the date. Knowing, uh, they, they would say oftentimes, the idea of, of, of saying a prayer when you accept Jesus Christ as your Savior, which is a fine thing to do, um, but then many people get confused and they start thinking the prayer is what saves them rather than faith that saves them. And, and um, they, they want a moment of salvation, and the biggest reason why they want a moment of salvation is because when people start to doubt, then you can think back to the moment, right, of salvation. And so in, our, in my circles, and in, in the circles that I grew up in at least, that idea of having a date or knowing the time or having that memory is a very, very important thing. Because if not, then you don't really have anything to hang on to in those times of doubt. But the Bible says we can know much better than just having a date written on our Bibles. That we may not even remember, but mom and dad helped us you know, put it down. Or I've got my certificate that says this was the day that, that I... Or I go up to mom and dad and say, mom and dad, when did I get saved? And they say, yeah, I remember it like it was yesterday. And you say, wow, I wish I could remember it. Um, and, and then there's doubts because you don't remember, uh, because you don't really know. And, and, you know, this is kind of a second generation. We talk about first world problems. This is a second generation Christian problem, right? Uh, young kids that get saved and whatnot that can struggle with this more. Um, but we don't want to have to allow our, you know, as, as, a, as a second generation Christian or a third generation Christian, I don't want to have to raise my kids and say, well, I'm going to keep them pagan just so that they can have enough sin in their background that when they get saved, they, they know it happened, right? We don't want to do that. So what are the assurances? Well, first I want to give you a warning. And the warning is from Matthew chapter 7. Jesus is talking to his disciples on the Sermon on the Mount, and in verses 21 to 27, he says this, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say unto me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works, and then will I profess unto them, I never knew you, 
Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man which built his house upon a rock. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat upon that house, and it fell not, for it was founded upon a rock. And everyone that heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them not shall be likened unto a foolish man which built his house upon the sand, and the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat upon that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. So Jesus warns here that there will even be people who have prophesied in his name and cast out devils in his name who will stand before God, and Jesus will look at them and say, you were never one of mine. And that is quite a sobering thought. I'm preaching through Luke right now and we just finished talking about Judas Iscariot uh, in my Sunday night sermons at, at our church. Judas Iscariot was a man who followed Jesus for the entirety of his ministry, three, three and a half years. He walked with Jesus, he listened to Jesus teach, he heard these very words out of Jesus' mouth. He went two by two with the other disciples to cast out demons and work miracles in, Je in Jesus' name. He went out with the 70 and worked miracles in Jesus' name. He was there the night of the Passover where Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper. He was there for all of that. He heard these things. He saw the woman taken in adultery lying there and Jesus wrote something in the sand. We have no idea and then everyone just kind of walked off because we don't even know what he wrote. He was there for all that. He was there as Jesus said that the Pharisees and Sadducees were hypocrites. They were like whited tombs that looked good on the outside but inside were full of dead men's bones. He was there for the day that he, he said that their cup was clean on the outside but inside it was full of filth. He went through all of that. And yet as Jesus comes to the end of his life, he testifies that Judas was not one of his. He testifies that Judas was never one of his. That Judas was not a believer. Though Judas had done all of these things, he was not a follower of Christ. And that's the warning, is that we can't look at a person and say, just because they do things in God's name, it does not mean that they're doing it because they are a follower. There are people that have all sorts of, any manner of, of reasons. And Second Peter talks about this, talks about false teachers. And the false teachers, they look good. Of course, they're also called wolves in sheep's clothing, right? Uh, the, by, by, by its very nature, if a wolf is in sheep's clothing, it doesn't look like a wolf, right? The fact that, it's, that, that he's in sheep's clothing means he looks like one of the sheep. There are people that dress like us and go to church like us. There are people standing in front of churches preaching that sound good and yet they are not Christ's. Second Peter warns against false teachers and the Bible says that they do what they do for the sake of money. They, be, they beguile unstable souls, is one of the ways Second Peter puts it. They find people, and because they know that, that religion is good business, and big business, because people will give a lot of money and a lot of time, and they will pour out for, religious, for religion, they take advantage of that to fleece the flock of God. They take advantage of that to, to, to beguile unstable souls. So this is a very stern warning. And Judas Iscariot is, is, is a great practical example of that in Scripture. And we're going to talk about how do I know that I'm a believer? What are the evidences that I am in the faith? Before we dig into that, are there any questions or thoughts? Okay. 
Well, as we begin, we're going to talk about six biblical evidences. Uh, it, I'm going to be walking primarily through 1 John. 1 John is a book that is meant to teach us how we can have what the Bible calls fullness of joy. How you can walk in fellowship with Christ. And as, the, as he teaches about walking in fellowship with Christ, he gives several evidences that tell us that we are in Christ. So in 1 John chapter 1, verse 1 through 2, uh, verse 1, the Bible says this, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled of the word of life, for the life was manifested, and we have seen it, and bear witness, and show unto you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifest unto us. And here's his first purpose statement. That which we have seen and heard, declare we unto you, that ye also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things write we unto you, that your joy may be full. This is how you can live in fullness of joy in assurance of salvation and living in the power of God. That's what 1 John is about. It doesn't tell you, it's not about are you saved or aren't you saved as much as it is how do I know I'm saved and what does that mean for me? This then is the message which we have heard of him and declare unto you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. If I, if I say, now remember, we're not talking salvation, we're talking fellowship. If I say I have fellowship, but I walk in darkness, I'm lying because there's something between me and God, right? I'm not in fellowship with Him. But, uh, if we, uh, but if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ His Son cleanseth us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So if we try to say, well, I don't sin, so this isn't my problem, well, then you're a liar because everyone sins. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When there's something between us, we confess it and he's faithful and just to forgive us, to cleanse us. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, these things write I unto you that ye sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So the stated purposes of 1 John are that we may have fellowship, with the believers that our joy may be full and that we would sin not. It's a book of assurance. It's not a book intended to say who is not saved, but rather who is saved. There's a distinction there. It's, I can't read 1 John and say I'm clearly not saved because of these things. But what I can say is if I see these things in my life, I am saved. The absence of the things in this book, uh, in, in this epistle do not necessarily mean I'm not saved. But the presence of them definitely means I am saved. Does that make sense? Okay. So, number one, the first evidence that you are a believer. These are the things that you ought to be looking for in your life. You don't, if, you, if you've got a date, great. I'm glad you've got a date. If you, if, 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 if you have something tangible in your life that says, I remember when I got saved or, or whatnot, that's, that's, that's great. But these are the things that you can see in your life that when you see them, you say, yes, I am in Christ. I am a believer. Number one, you keep God's commandments and you want to keep God's commandments. 1 John chapter 2, verses 3-5. through 5, And hereby we do know that we know Him if we keep His commandments. We know that we know Him if we keep His commandments. He that saith... I know him and keepeth not his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. 
But whoso keepeth his word, in him verily is the love of God perfected. Hereby know we that we are in him. We know him if we keep his commandments. Verses 28 and 29. And now, little children, abide in him, that when he shall appear we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. If ye know that he is righteous, ye know that everyone that doeth righteousness is born of him. When we desire, when, when, when we keep his commandments, we'll get to the desiring in just a moment. When we keep his commandments, it is an evidence that we are in Christ. 1 John chapter 3, verses 2 and 3. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself even as he is pure. How do you know that you're a believer? Because you are driven to do right. You're driven to, out of love to, to do right. Verses 7 through 10 of 1 John 3. Little children, let no man deceive you. He that doeth righteousness is righteous, even as he is righteous. He that committeth sin is of the devil, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. Now, again, this does not mean, go, go, this is why starting out in 1 John was important. 1 John already says, if I say I have no sin, then I'm a liar, right? So this is not, I commit any sin. This is, if I am living in a lifestyle of sin, and it's fine, and I don't mind, and I don't want to keep God's commandments, and if I am just... Uh, just a downright dirty, rotten sinner, and that's fine with me, but I say I'm a believer, there's a major problem. There's a major problem. Um, verse 9, Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin, for his seed remaineth in him, and he cannot sin, because he is born of God. In this is the, the children of God are manifest, and the children of the devil. Whoso doeth not righteousness is not of God. Neither he that loveth, not his brother. And we'll get to that second expectation in just a moment. So again, the idea is not here that you commit one sin, but that you are living a lifestyle of sin, and that it's not a problem, and that there's no conviction, which we'll talk about in a moment. And we'll round this whole thing out as we continue to walk through it. Verses 23 through 24 of 1 John 3. And this is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us commandment. And he that keepeth his commandments, to believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, loving one another, dwelleth in him and he in him. Hereby know that he abideth in us by the Spirit which he hath given unto us. And then 1 John 5, verses 2 and 3. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and, he, and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not grievous. There is a transition that happens in the Christian life where at first, uh, well, depending on the person, of course, you, you recognize God's commands and at some point you might weigh what God wants you to do against what you want to do and say, wow, the Christian life seems like that's not fun. Uh, all of a sudden, I can't do anymore. That is not really how the Christian life is. The Christian life, you know, walls are built for various reasons. Uh, there are, from time to time, there have been walls, uh, such as around jails and prisons, that are, that are built to keep people in. And those walls that are meant to keep people in confine people. And then there are walls that are built to keep people out. The walls that are meant to keep people in confine. The walls that are meant to keep people out protect. Right? Now, as we think about God, the Bible says that God loves us. 
when we accept Jesus Christ as our Savior, we can think all the way back to Adam and Eve in the garden. And in the garden, God placed Adam and Eve in the garden and he said, you can eat of any tree but one. And that tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, of that fruit you shall not eat, and the day that you eat you shall surely die. Was God a bad, cruel, horrible God because he was withholding that one thing? Well, no. He knew that that thing was not what was best for them. And so he told them they could not eat it to protect them. As you grow in your Christian life, as you learn more about God, as you learn to love God, what you'll find is that God puts barriers in your life to protect you. That he does not withhold from you anything that is within your best interests or ask you to abstain from anything that is for your best good. But that if God asks it, it's because it is what is best for you. If God calls you unto it, it is because in love he desires it for you. And as you learn to trust God, you learn to see his commandments as the, as the ultimate liberty. In other words, my children, have you ever noticed how much children love boundaries? I don't know if you grew up with boundaries um, or, or if, you, if you've been raising your children with boundaries. But children absolutely love knowing boundaries. And that may sound contradictory. Wait a minute. No, my children want to run all over the place. Yes, that, that's what they want, but it's not what they really want. They want structure. They want boundaries. Here's the thing. If I give my child no boundaries, and my child begins to do things, the problem is my child never knows what's going to make me upset or not, because I've not told them. And so they might be playing one day, and they're playing with something, and mom and dad never told them they couldn't play with that, and then dad just explodes. Why are you doing that? And they did not know that they were not supposed to do that, but I guess they were supposed to know somehow. And then they get in trouble. And now they're like, okay, what else is dad going to get angry at me about? And now they live in fear of their father because they don't know God's, they don't know their father's expectations and they don't know what their father wants of them. And they don't know if something that they're going to do that, 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 that maybe they can do, maybe they can't, is just going to get them in trouble one day. But if I look at my children and I say, these are the boundaries, you can do this, you can't do that. Now, my children still have a choice to make. Are they going to do it or are they not? But when they are doing what I've told them they can do, they can do it with absolute freedom. With absolute freedom, without any guilt, without any fear that I'm going to blow up at them because I have given him or her the right to do it. I've given them the boundaries. And because I've given them the boundaries, now they have the freedom to operate within those boundaries. And that's true freedom. True freedom is not the absence of restrictions. True freedom is when the restrictions allow me, uh, when the restrictions are clear, and then I am allowed to freely operate within the bounds of those restrictions with peace. And this is something that we're losing in our society today. Our society is basically trying to say that liberty is without obligation, without responsibility, that it's, it's anarchy, that I, don't, I, I ought not have restrictions. But that's not liberty. That's not freedom. Freedom is not the absence of restrictions. Freedom is when there's a system that's just enough that, I, that it gives me the maximum um, ability to function within the bounds of reason, within the bounds of, of um, other people's personal liberties, within the bounds of morality, and I'm allowed to operate within those bounds without fear that somebody is going to come and impose upon me their will without, 
without my, my power to do anything. In other words, um, if I know business laws, and if we have a just system, then I have the freedom to operate within those laws. But if I'm in a mob boss area, then all of a sudden the laws are going to change on me. And though I was supposed to have the freedom to be able to do this, now those, the, the rules are changing based upon corruption. So maybe I can get away with more if I have the right contacts and I know the right people, but I can get away with less if I get on the, person, the, the wrong person's bad side. There's no freedom there because I don't know my boundaries. I can't operate with freedom, and so I've got to stay careful. In Christ, his commandments give us offense. And it's offense. No bones about it. There are things that are on the wrong side of that fence, and they're wrong. God has given us restrictions. But do we love God enough, and can we trust God enough to believe that any restriction he's put up is for my best good? And if I can identify that, and identify the restrictions that God has put in place, and trust that they are for my best good, then all of a sudden I look out there and I say, you know what, I don't even want those things. Because God doesn't want me to have them, and I trust him that that's best for me. And then, when I am within those boundaries, I have absolute freedom to know that God is not going to change his mind one day and decide that what I'm doing today is now wrong. And that gives, it, it lifts off of my shoulders the burden of fear and guilt and shame. Because I know his restrictions, and I know he loves me, and I trust his restrictions, and I trust his love for me, and I operate with freedom within those boundaries. Absolute freedom. That's real joy. That's when life takes on a, a freedom. That I don't have to be living in guilt and shame and fear and wondering. I don't even have to live that way before man. You know, our churches today are racked with fear that they're going to say something wrong. We were talking just before the, the, the lessons that, you know, have I been, demo, have, have, have I been uh, kicked off of YouTube yet, right? Um, because YouTube is, a, is now a, a state of fear. I mean, people wondering if they're going to get demonetized. People wondering if they're going to be kicked off. People, there's, there's no freedom anymore, and there's not even really any clear boundaries, right? And this idea that to operate in, in peace is to operate knowing that if I do certain things, I'm okay. If I do other things, I am not okay. I have a daughter who, when she does wrong, and she knows she does wrong, um, if I give her grace, and she does wrong, and, and I just kind of, I rebuke her, and then I just let her go on with her way, she is, she's a tyrant until I discipline her. It's like she's begging me to discipline her because she needs to get right with me. She needs it to be done. And so she actually subconsciously, she doesn't do it on purpose, she's only six years old, but she will actually go out of her way to continue to be miserable until I discipline her. At which point, it's like a reset button. And she's good again. Things are right between her and dad again because now I've disciplined her. Now she can operate in that freedom again. The boundaries have been reset. And if we can get to that place with God, where we are operating within the bounds of his expectations, of his lovingly given expectations for us, and trust that it is his love, then his commandments are not grievous. When you're there, you'll know that you're in Christ because there will be a joy.
there will be a delight. I gave some, some scattered illustrations there. Any thoughts, questions, additions, concerns? So the first one, we keep God's commandments. His commandments are not grievous. Second, mark of assurance. We love the brethren. Um, I'm going to skip through these a little bit. I would like to finish up um, tonight with this. I don't think it would be a great topic. I'd love to have other people here for it. Um, I might give a brief synopsis of it next week, but... um, but I, I would like to get through them all. So I'm not going to read all these verses. They all basically say the same thing. And of course you can read them on your own. Um, verse, uh, 1 John 4, 7 and 8. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is of God. And everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth not God. For God is love. Um, chapter 4, verses 20 and 21. If a man say, I love God and hateth his brother, he's a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? And this commandment have we from him, that he who loved God love his brother also. This is not speaking of um, your, your bloodline brothers. Um, this is speaking of believers. If you walk in, have you ever walked into a group of people um, and just, as a believer, you just, they're believers too and there's that connection it's like you, you know that, that they're a believer and you're a believer and, and, and it's like you're able to relate on a different level. I remember when I was in China, I went there for six weeks on a missions trip teaching English. Uh, we couldn't, you know, you can't just openly preach the gospel in China. So we went as English teachers and taught a lot of English. And there was a, um, an underground house church that we were able to go to twice within that six weeks. It was quite dangerous for us to go there. It was met in an apartment, uh, you know. That it was all through the grapevine and everything because it was illegal to have it. And I remember stepping into that church service and there was just a spirit of unity. I didn't speak Chinese. They, they, they were very rural. They didn't speak English. You know, a lot of the people in our, where we were teaching English, they, they knew English and whatnot. But these folks, they did not know English. They, many of them had never even seen a white person in their life. Um, and... I stepped in there and there was an immediate bond, an immediate unity. And that is what we call the bond of, of the Spirit of God um, because we are all in Christ. And that idea that I love the brethren, that I love to assemble among God's people, that I love to be at church. Uh, if you're in a church of, of, of believers, you know, there are some churches out there that aren't, aren't uh, they're more like social clubs than they are like, like uh, churches. But if you're among believers, you, you want to be among the believers. You, you, it doesn't mean that you never have a spat or a disagreement with, with a, a believer, but you love the brethren. You love believers. You love that fellowship. There's freedom in that. There's joy in that. There's a peace when you're around God's people. Uh, there's a unity. There's, there's a freedom. If, if, you, if you know what I'm talking about, that's a good sign that you're in Christ. If you don't know what I'm talking about, um, the, then again, these things are not things that say you're not in Christ. They're things that say you are in Christ. So if you don't see that, you should be wondering why. It doesn't mean you're not in Christ, but it, it, it does mean that there's something amiss. Either you're not in a church, uh, you know, a right setting, where there are actually you know, a, a good number of believers and such. Maybe it's just a bunch of people who are claiming Christ but aren't, or 
um, there's something in, in your spiritual life that's hindering you. And it may, it, it may be even just a mindset issue. So loving the brethren is the second. Questions or thoughts on that? Third, um, you confess Jesus to be the Son of God, having come in the flesh. First uh, John chapter two, verses twenty-two and twenty-three. Who is a liar but he that denieth that Jesus is the Christ? He is antichrist that denieth the Father and the Son. Whoso denieth the Son, the same hath not the Father. But he that acknowledgeth the Son hath his Father also. This is the one that is most uh, that, that that we could most blatantly say: If you don't do this, you are not in Christ. If you do not believe that Jesus is God, that He died on the cross for you, that He rose again that it, bodily, that that He came in the flesh to do this thing to save men from their sins, um, if you do not believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, if you do not believe He bore our sins on the cross, you are not in Christ. Um, this is the gospel. This is the essence of what it means to be in Christ. Uh, there, are, there are are whole denominations out there now that are starting to question things such as the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. Um, when, when you see people and they do not, if they do not believe that Jesus came in the flesh, that he is God, that he died on the cross, that he was buried, that he rose again the third day, that he is alive. Uh, and, and it may be that there's some ignorance there, you know, they haven't thought about it or they didn't, you know, whatever. The terminology is different. I'm not saying that if somebody doesn't understand the terminology, they're not saved. But look, this is, this is the most black and white. If you do not confess that Jesus is God, that he came in the flesh, that he rose again, you're not in Christ. Uh, it's the very essence of what it means to be in Christ according to the word of God. Um, and then there's the Spirit, uh, chapter 4, 1 John 4, verses 1 through 6. Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. If you're listening to a teacher and they're questioning the resurrection or they're questioning... Uh, Jesus' deity, they're questioning those things. That's a teacher you don't need to be listening to. They, they have a spirit that is not reflecting the spirit of God. Um, a, a, a person who has the spirit of God in him will not question these things. Now, I'm not saying you, it'll never, doubts will never run through your mind. I'm saying, I'm saying that the man who has the spirit of God will, will believe, no, believe, Confess that Jesus has come in the flesh. I, doubt was the wrong word there. That's why I was hesitant. A believer can be confused. In other words, hear something and say, wow, I don't know how that reconciles with my faith. I don't understand that. And that can cause some angst, perhaps sometimes, as you hear something that you struggle with. But a believer will confess that they believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that he died on the cross, that he rose again. Um, that is the essence of what it means. If, if, uh, if you don't have that, you don't have Christ. Questions or thought on that? Four, you're led of the Spirit. This is the one that's going to give way to the, the, the discussion on the, on the flesh and the Spirit next week. Um, Romans chapter 8, verses 14 to 16, we read that already. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. Um, John 15, Jesus says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. He likens himself to the trunk, and we are the, 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 the branches of the tree. 
if when you're connected to the trunk, when you're walking in fellowship with the trunk, you will bear fruit. You'll bear the fruit of righteousness. That's as you're walking in the Spirit. Can a believer not be led of the Spirit? Absolutely. Again, this is not an evidence that you are not saved. This is an evidence that you are saved. Do you see the power of the Spirit of God working through you? Have you ever been in a situation where someone's been asking you about something with the Bible and you've talked with them and you've walked away from that conversation saying, wow, I brought up verses I didn't even know I knew. Wow, I brought up concepts I didn't even know I thought of. Um, I was able to explain things to them in a way that I had not even really understood before. That's the Spirit of God using you to minister to others. Um, the, the, the deep compulsions to minister to the brethren. Uh, these sorts of things. You can see evidences. We'll talk about those evidences next week. Um, so you can kind of set this aside a little bit. But um, um, the, the idea there being that when we, uh, when we see the evidences of being led by the Spirit of God, bearing the fruit of the Spirit, then it proves to us that we are in Christ. Number five. We're divinely chastened for sin. We talked about the difference between conviction and guilt and shame and condemnation. Conviction is uh, uh, God calling me back to Him. If I do not respond to conviction, if I do wrong and I'm convicted of it and um, I do not get it right, then God begins the process of what, what we call chastening. It's the same thing a father does with his child. There's a difference between chastening and punishment. Punishment is the natural consequences of doing wrong, whether I feel good about it, whether I, I'm sorry for it or not. Chastening is a process whereby you make someone recognize that they've done wrong and bring them to a point of being sorry, bringing them to a point of repentance. So in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 through 8, the Bible says this, Ye have not forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children. This is page 7. My son... Despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. If ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he, of whom his fa uh, of, uh, is he whom the Father chasteneth not? But if ye be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then ye are bastards, and not sons. That word bastards, of course, meaning an, illeg an illegitimate child, right, is what that, what that word um, meant. And it, it, I guess it, it's taken on all sorts of new connotations today, but it still means the same thing, right? It still means an illegitimate child. So the idea is this. God is our Father. If we've accepted Jesus Christ as our Savior, God is our Father. And if God is our Father, then He deals with us as with sons. Now, as a, a parent... I discipline my child not because I dislike my child or hate my child. Or I discipline my child because of how much I love my child. And I am determined that my children will learn to obey now when the consequences are, uh, are minimal. Learning to not steal the cookie. Learning to listen to authorities. Learning to submit themselves to, to uh, expectations and rules. So that they don't have to learn and end up in a jail cell to learn the lesson. Uh, I, I discipline them now so that the, the society and, and, and doesn't have to discipline them later. I train them now so that their boss doesn't have to try to train them later. I, I deal with it now and that's my job in love. Whom the Lord loveth, he corrects. Even as a father, the son in whom he's well pleased. If my father does not discipline me, 
It is not because he. Parents have all sorts of ideas, right? But at the end of the day, a parent who does not discipline his child is not showing love. I'm not saying they don't love their child. I'm saying they are not showing love to their child if they don't discipline their child. Discipline is love. If it's true, if it's right, if it's necessary, it is love. It's the most loving thing I can do. God loves us. And because God is not like me, whereas I sometimes fail to discipline my children because I'm lazy or I'm busy or I'm whatever it might be, God will not fail. God cannot fail, which means when I do wrong, if I'm living in a wrong way, He will chasten me. What does that chastening look like? It can look like all sorts of things. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul talked about the chastening hand of the Lord upon the church, that they were getting sick and some were even dying. Uh, sometimes the chastening of the hand of the Lord can just be a spiritual thing, uh, heavy conviction. Sometimes it can be a physical manifestation. All of a sudden, things just, just aren't, aren't, aren't going anymore, right? It's like I'm hitting a wall. Every, every, everything I'm trying to do, maybe God is resisting me. Maybe He's chastening me. Now, it's not always the way it is, right? Uh, sometimes it's just the, the guy across the street doesn't like me and he's letting his, you know, he's, he's, he's the, my neighbor's the problem, not God, right? Um, my, my partner's the problem, whatever, not God. But... If I'm under conviction and I'm not responding to that conviction, God will start to get my attention. And you'll know it's God. And it's obvious it's God and God is trying to get your attention. And when you see that, um, well, first of all, respond, right? Get right. But in one sense, that's a good thing. You don't want to be under the chastening hand of God. But the chastening hand of God does tell you something. And what the chastening hand of God tells you is that you are one of His. Because God's not going to chasten, He doesn't chasten the unbeliever. God does not chasten the unbeliever. Natural consequences of sin fall upon the unbeliever. That's, that's how it is, but God's not going to chasten them. They are not His children. But the believer is chastened. You say, wow, so you mean that when I accept Christ as my Savior, now I have an extra layer of it, problems become, yeah, I can have bigger problems for sinning after I get saved than before? Yes. Because God is not going to sit still and just smile at you while you persist in sin, if you're one of His. He loves you too much for that. So, he, so, so, so some people, when they, when they accept Jesus Christ as their Savior, um, things get worse before they get better. Because God is having to discipline them a little bit. And uh, get, the, get, get that dealt with. Number six, and then I'll let you go. I'm trying to, uh, trying to be very... Um, Respectful of your time here tonight. Uh, understanding the spiritual. This last one, uh, 1 Corinthians 2, which says that the natural man, uh, let's see, uh, verse 14 there. But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. Um, the unbeliever does not understand spiritual things. They can know what the Bible says, but they're never going to fully understand it. And this is one of the big problems as we talk again about society and societal issues. And when I sit there, when, when I stand and I say, no, something is wrong, and somebody else looks at me and says, look, why does it matter? Or why do you think the way you think on this? And why is it so important to you? And they just can't understand. They can't understand why I won't lie on my taxes and cheat. They can't understand why I won't do these things. And, and, and they can understand that the Bible says things, but they don't understand the spiritual layer. The unbeliever can't understand the spiritual layer. 
They simply can't. They cannot understand the spiritual things. They call us madmen for believing that there's this guy that did miracles and then rose from the dead. Right? You're, you're absolutely crazy. Why would you believe something? Uh, you're an otherwise rational person and yet you believe in this, right? You can't understand. Except the Spirit of God show you because you're not in Christ. Now, the Spirit of God can reveal it to them and then they accept Christ as their Savior. And I've had it mentioned many times that people, when they accept Christ as their Savior, they say, it's as if scales fell from my eyes. It's as if blinders fell off. And they started seeing the world differently. So the person who, who, who lived in this life uh, of, of, of sin and, and didn't care and, and immorality and whatnot, all of a sudden they become ultra-traditional, right? What, what, what happened? They see the world entirely different now. They, they, they see history entirely different now. What happened? Well, they put on new lenses. They were looking through the worldview of, of, of sin and of their own choices. And now God has given them the lenses of the Spirit of God and everything changes. He sees everything differently. It colors everything in our lives. It colors how we see society. It colors how we understand politics. It colors uh, what we see as the role of family and government and church and society. It colors how we understand authority structure. It colors everything in life. And others look at us and say, you're crazy for thinking this way. And they don't understand it and they can't understand it. You can try to explain it rationally and you can go through you know, Platonic values and Aristotle and, and, and we can talk about all the philosophers and whatnot and we can kind of wind our way to these truths. But at the end of the day, it comes down to this. The things of the Spirit of God cannot be known by those who are not in the Spirit. And so at some point, and the unbeliever is going to hit a wall and just say, none of this makes any sense to me. Or they're going to be reading the Bible and they'll just say, the Bible doesn't make sense. One of my favorite things in the jail is when somebody comes up to me and they, they're not a believer and, and, and they just say, I've tried to read the Bible so many times and none of it makes any sense. And then they accept Christ and I say, now read this passage. And they'll go, oh, and they're just so excited because now it's clicking. Well, what's going on there? The Spirit of God is inside them. Now they understand it and they understand it because they have Christ. So those are six evidences. If you have seen these things in your life, then they're evidences that you're in Christ. If you have not seen these things in your life, um, again, it does not explicitly mean, except for the confessing Christ one, right? It does not explicitly mean you're not in Christ, but it does mean that you're not properly adjusted to Christ if if these things are not evidence, uh, evidencing themselves in your life. And, and if there is a point, and I know that we don't have a whole lot of our men here tonight, but if, if as I've presented these things, uh, the Spirit of God, something inside of you is saying, you know, I don't know. I'm not confident. I don't know that I'm in Christ after walking through this list. Uh, I, I'd encourage you to come see me. It's, it's just not something that's worth playing around with. Uh, eternity, those things, it's just not worth playing around with. Um, if... If you, you, well, and as we talk about um, next week, the spirit and the flesh, that'll help out a lot with the idea of what does it mean to walk in the spirit, to see the evidences of the spirit in my life, and to yield to the spirit, what we talked about in Romans 6 and 8, and what, we're, what we talked about in assurance, and we'll, we'll cover that next week. Um, any final questions or thoughts?